Hey everybody, welcome to Dead Cat. Tom Dotan here, joined by Eric Newcomer, and we are joined this episode by Washington Post reporter and author Joe Men. Joe has been covering cybersecurity for years and also has written many books about the topic, including his most recent book, Cult of the Dead Cow, which uh, we can ask about that. Very fascinating title. I think it involves Beto O'Rourke in some capacity, so we can discuss that. But the heart of this episode is going to be about a fascinating case that just concluded this last week involving Joe Sullivan, the former chief security officer at Uber, who was charged and convicted by... Spoilers! Uh, yeah. Well, if you read if you read Joe's article, you knew all this. <laughs> I'm curious how many people are following this case, but I think it's it's not, you know, the Theranos trial, but I think it's a very significant one and interesting one. Yeah, it's a fascinating case about, you know, bug bounties, the FBI, the FTC. Uh, Joseph is going to summarize all of it for us, but I will say at the outset, because I know Eric will jump in with here at some point, because when he was covering Uber... Uh, you were very much involved in the coverage of uh, Joe's ouster from Uber and kind of the precipitating yeah, events. Yeah, I was the first to report this yeah. story. The uh, the hack and Joe's yeah. firing. But anyway, Joseph, thank you so much for joining. Welcome to Dead Cat. Yeah, thanks. Nice to be here. Let's just summarize the, uh, the charges here. Like what was uh, Joe Sullivan charged with and ultimately convicted of? And uh, just give us the backstory on how we got to this point. Okay, well, I, I think you have to go back to the hack itself. So... There were a couple of uh, young hackers, one in Florida, one in Canada, that found an Amazon key uh, used by Uber lying around on GitHub and then used that to get into a uh, unencrypted backup that had information on all Uber users through 2015 um, and included phone numbers and other sensitive information. And also a... Um, you know, a store of information about Uber drivers, uh, 600,000 of them, including their driver's license numbers. So sensitive stuff. They obtained this. They sent uh, Joe Sullivan, then chief security officer at Uber, uh, an ominous email. And, you know, they said, hey, we, we discovered this vulnerability and uh, we're prepared to tell you about it, but we were able to download um, all this information. And then there was like this prolonged back and forth with Joe and with other security people there. And after all this happened, towards the end of it, uh, Sullivan steered them into Uber's bug bounty program, which rewards, uh, you know, more or less ethical hackers with some money if they discover vulnerabilities. The idealized bug bounty being, I'm a researcher, I see this flaw, I'm not executing on it, but if somebody were to do this, you know, I would get X, Y, and Z, and then the company, out of the goodness of their hearts, pays them to avoid those people sort of becoming like black hat hackers and also because they're effectively working for the company to find vulnerabilities. Would you say that's a fair explanation? I would have some, a number of minor quibbles with, with the way you laid it out. You know, generally they're not, the payments aren't to prevent them from being black hats. <laughs> generally the thinking is that these people, they want to be on the right side of the law and this just makes it less costly for them to make that choice. Yeah, they're not at-risk teens. Well, this, that need to yeah, be. whereas in this case, they seem a little bit more, yeah, at-risk. I mean, the, the standard bug bounty is for Uber was $10,000 and in this case, it was a, ultimately a $100,000 payment, right? That's right. I'll just fast forward to get the uh, the basic facts, the case and charges out there. They ultimately paid off the hackers $100,000. They assured themselves that the data had been deleted, hadn't been distributed to others, and they had the hackers sign an NDA 
saying they wouldn't talk about this. And they're, they're actually the wording of that NDA winds up later to be very important. And then nobody knows about it until after Travis Kalanick is gone. Well, I wouldn't say nobody. Many people at the company knew about it, including Travis Kalanick, who's then CEO. Travis gets ousted in a boardroom coup uh, after unrelated scandals. New CEO comes in, Dara and... Dara Kozrashawi, yeah. Uh, thank you for pronouncing that for me. And Tony West is general counsel, a lot of, a lot of big figures. And this sort of bubbles up again as a topic and there's a new investigation and then they basically decide to throw Joe to the wolves. But the charges were for, not for the payoff itself, but for uh, what is called a misprison of a felony, which is a rarely charged statute that means you... <laughs> a crime we all have strong intuitions and moral sensibilities like i barely know what it is yeah i did have to go to google translate to make sure i pronounced it correctly it's misprision misprision <laughs> there you go yeah. so it is it is not only failing to report a felony but actively concealing one like taking an affirmative actions to prevent a felony from coming to light and he was also charged with obstruction of justice because there was an ftc uh, investigation of previous speeches at Uber that was wrapping up. And this was, I guess, pointedly not disclosed to them when it should have been, according to prosecutors. So those are the charges. Right. And his being fired from Uber, that was a story in and of itself, right? And there was controversy at the time around why he was fired and the nature of it. But the, the you know, he could have been fired and not been charged with the crime here, right? These are almost unrelated incidences, correct? I wouldn't say they're unrelated. So um, his firing was controversial within the company. Um, I mean, he was not seen as one of, most employees did not see him as one of Travis's like, you know, key hench people. You know, he was seen as as one of the, you know, the more recent hires and grownups. You know, he hadn't been implicated in a lot of the other sketchy stuff that Uber was involved in. And then it's not just that he was, you know, he wasn't charged randomly. The Uber folks that remained worked hand in glove with the U.S. Attorney's Office to to charge Joe. Hmm. And, uh, you know, they walked them through the whole thing. They built a lot of the case. And then, you know, uh, quite another obvious suspect would have been the lawyer who was working under Joe, uh, Craig Clark. And Craig Clark was so nervous about all of this that he got immunity from the feds in order to testify against Joe. And Joe, in turn, had blamed like some of this on the legal advice he got from Craig. So it is weird that Joe is not only charged with this very unusual crime, at least one of them, but that he um, he was the only person from Uber that has been convicted of anything, as far as I know, in, in the executive ranks, despite all the other stuff that was going on there, and that he was the only one that was taken down for this particular thing when the CEO and others were involved. And, and let's just do a little bit of background on Joe, because we should definitely set up for our audience that this is a fairly well-established, well-regarded person in the cybersecurity industry. I mean, what was his background before you know, taking on this position at Uber? So he he was actually a federal prosecutor back in the day, and he was one of the early enthusiasts about developing cybercrime as expertise. So in fact, you know, he he was uh, he'd worked in a, a couple of different offices, but in in the San Francisco U.S. Attorney's Office, which later prosecuted him, he had hmm. helped set up. It was a you know initial member of their cyber team. And then uh, he, you know, like Manny, he left public service to make some decent money. And he went to Facebook, where he was in the earlier phases of Facebook. He was the chief security officer there. 
it, you know, as was sort of well known in the field from that point on, because Facebook was the subject of a lot of attacks, a lot of attention. And, you know, he did a lot of things that are now sort of industry standard practice, including, you know, red teaming, you know, hiring people to attack the company to see how they did. And they also paid bug bounties and, and stuff like that. So he, he went, he was there. And then he went to Cloudflare, which is maybe, you know, arguably more interesting because for him, because lots of international stuff, terrorist stuff, all kinds of really sketchy people use Cloudflare. So it's really, you know, interesting from like an intelligence perspective, as well as a law enforcement and, and garden variety security perspective. And also Cloudflare is like a security company. So he, I think it was playing a more central role That's there. That's after Uber, right? Just to... I'm sorry. Yes, I skipped Uber. Yeah. Because I mean, he's hired at Uber in 2015. And then basically Alice right. a- did, after a really bad breach. Right. After a bad breach. Right. And then Alice did in November 2017. And so yeah, he's not sort of the super early days Travis, but he's there for some of the core sort of Travis years and ends <laughs> when those years come to an end. Yeah. Well, and 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 Joseph Joseph was characterizing this a little bit, but you know Eric from just covering Uber so intensely during that period. How does he kind of fit into the, the Travis hierarchy? I mean, he's not a founding guy. He's not one of his, you know, one of his guys who builds the app, but he is a key player in the scaling of the service, right? And ensuring that it remains, at least for a time, free of major breaches of data and, you know, the kinds of things you would need for an app that is catering to millions and millions of people. Right. I mean, I, I certainly a lot of people agree with the idea that it's crazy that all of all the executives at Uber who have gotten convicted of something, it's Joe Sullivan, who I do think as a former prosecutor was seen as sort of a stand-up guy and definitely not some diehard Uber loyalist and definitely sort of a professional executive coming from Facebook. That said, you know, Joe Sullivan, you know, was given some legal authority at the company. I mean, part of this case is there's sort of a weirdness of the his deputy reported up to him and not sort of the general, the the overall legal officer. Uh, Joe Sullivan was also like responsible for some, of, I, I believe the physical surveillance that Uber did, including over like Gene Liu, their competitor. Well, it's not illegal, I don't think. It, you know, it is involved in some of the sort of intense Travis era, like we want to know like what's going on with our competitors. So I, I don't totally agree with the idea that this is somebody who totally divorced himself from the, aggressive behavior of Uber during the Travis Kalanick era. And then sort of figuring this out, hack out fits into the sort of Travis strategy of, you know, one might say like creative problem solving when it comes to to navigating trouble and uh, sort of legal gray areas. Yeah. Well, well, let's get to the case itself, because as you say, there is a bit of a divergence between the bug bounty program and you know, the way you sort of deal with white hat hacking and what the government actually was charging him with. So why is it that the FTC is even investigating Uber during this period? And what are the actions that Joe took that ended up, you know, getting him charged with a crime? Well, there was a there was a massive breach in 2014 that was kind of similar. It was like a great a great spill of user data. And so the FTC was investigating and it was going to, you know, come up with, you know, various sort of consent decree type stuff where they have to agree to do some basic good housekeeping in terms of, you know, real security for that stuff. And it was near the end of that investigation is, is one of the, the sort of the ironies here. They, they, 
you know, they were still asking questions, but we were on, I think, the fifth or sixth, sixth round of questions that the FTC had sent over before this happens and before Joe gets in trouble. They, they go to another attorney, uh, the, the privacy attorney, the head, of, the head of privacy at Uber, and she is somebody who is being kept roughly in the loop about this breach by Craig Clark. So Craig Clark had a dotted line to, you know, the general counsel's office. It is true that Joe was deputy general counsel, but he didn't sort of caucus with the legal department. He didn't have meetings uh, with the legal department. But does that make it even sketchier? Why he's deputy general counsel, but he's not sort of looped into that hierarchy? I don't know about it being sketchier. I think there, you know, it's a nice title to have. It may have been ill-advised in in retrospect, but he Hmm. he wasn't, I think he wanted authority to do certain things. And, you know, Uber, as you know, from covering the company was super siloed, you know, they were like, yeah, I think he wanted to have, you know, to exercise some power over, over things that he couldn't without that title. Right. But it, it is clear that there, that, um, that Craig, you know, did blow the whistle on other things. A lot has been made of the fact that, you know, he was reporting to Joe, but he also, he also told his successive privacy bosses in the general counsel's office about what was going on with this case. And those and the and those were the people that were answering the FTC questions. There were some emails that was in there were a couple emails introduced as evidence that asked Joe to look over some stuff and say, you know, is this right? Do you have any problem with this? And one of those answers out of a long series of answers was there haven't been any bad breaches, you know, since then or something like that. And that's what what he got in trouble for not flagging. But it wasn't like the strongest, it, you know, it wasn't the strongest evidence in the world. I think there was more problems with the wording of the NDA, which said that in order to get this $100,000 check, they said, or maybe it was Bitcoin, they said, um, the statement said, we have not taken or kept any data from Uber as part of our uh, as part of our explorations, and when that they was have. false. Yeah. Well, that was false because they had. So the the jury, you know, the, the 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 lawyers in the case got into like who did the edits on that NDA, and Joe did some edits, but did not that one. So the prosecutors were arguing that even though Craig Clark was the one who had put in those words, Joe should have edited that, and maybe he was like the brains behind that ad. I mean, it it is thin. I mean, it is it is it is really thin. It seems like there was a lot of judgment call in this. You know, by interpretation by the by the feds and by the jury. But when when Dara comes in and asks Joe about this, Joe doesn't tell Dara all the details of the case, correct? So there is an email, an early email, where Joe briefs Dara that okay, there was an incident, we're handling it this way. And that email was fairly circumstant. And and he'd asked his people to brief him. And one of his people had sent an email saying, well, we basically got extorted and, you know, it was terrible. And then Joe gives Dara a pretty sanitized version of what it happened. Doesn't include the amount of money. Calls it a bug bounty. Right. Yeah. And all Uber's bug bounties before this, like 10,000 was the max. This was 100,000. These people downloaded the files. Normal bug bounties, you don't download the. I'm sorry, but I'm just like... I think there's an interesting discussion and this comes in through your story. Definitely like now we're in this era where everybody's paying for things. Would we view this in the same light? I get I get that point. I'm happy to have that discussion. But the idea that this was a hack that was then tried to frame during a bug bounty during a time when Uber was in trouble with the FTC 
and negotiating with them to make sure that this didn't fit in to the kind of breach that they would need to disclose to the FTC. It just seems like a pretty compelling case to me. And and now the jury jury has convicted them. And I still think that like the tone from sort of cybersecurity world is like shock that there would be convictions here. Let's get to that in, in a second, because I want to understand in the in the in the course of the case here, what was the characterization that the prosecution had of why Joe would do that? Why Joe would, you know, keep this from Dara in a way that, you know, they defined as criminal, as misprision and obstruction of justice. I mean, Joe is a tenured security officer, used to be, uh, you know, uh, with the U.S. attorneys. I mean, what was the kind of depiction that the prosecution had on why someone would do this? They were arguing that he was acting out of embarrassment, that he didn't want his reputation as, you know, a very respected member of the defense security world to be torn asunder because he allowed this terrible breach to happen on his watch. Mm -hmm. I personally don't think that holds water. There's all the internal traffic about the matter shows that for for quite a while, while they were working on this, Joe was saying, we don't know whether this is going to be something we have to disclose or not. We don't know whether we can call it a bug bounty and pay some money and have it go away, or we'll have to disclose it. But that was certainly something that they were, you know, they 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 saw as a major possibility. The reason they didn't in the end was that they were convinced that the data hadn't gone beyond these couple of hackers and the couple of hackers wished them no harm. That is not something that would normally be charged criminally. That might be a big screw up. And, you know, maybe he gets personally barred by the FTC from, you know, serving on company boards or something or another, maybe, they, you know, but it's just, that is just a real outlier. It's a criminal offense. I mean, an element you nod out of your story and you, you know better than I do and I'm interested in especially is like this idea that, were the prosecutors trying to get him to flip on Travis Kalanick? Because there can be sort of a double situation here where Joe gets defended because he wasn't the CEO, he was the CISO. On the other hand, why? if, if the issue is that everything should run up to the CEO, why didn't Joe flip on Travis here? So the evidence, so they were trying to get to Travis, who would have been a big feather in any U.S. attorney's cap. And they did get evidence from Joe on that. And that that evidence was actually fairly substantial. There were you know lots of texts and and phone calls and conversations, and Travis said things like, "Yeah, this, this would be great if it's a bug bounty," but there wasn't a direct cover this stuff up. You know, don't let the FTC find out about it. There wasn't a smoking gun, so there was a, a bigger paper trail on Joe because he was kind of in, in the middle of it the whole time. It's weird to call this a cover up. When there were like, you know, I forget, something like 30 people who knew about it. This was not the, you know, go meet and take some cash, you know, and, and meet somebody in a back alley with a briefcase. Right. You know, they worked through the bug bounty platform, you know, Hacker One. That communications team up to Rachel Whetstone knew the facts of the case within 24 hours. Hmm. She's the chief communications officer for Uber right. at the time, right? And yeah. uh, so she did, Travis did. I mean, Joe told everybody he was supposed to tell. So, I mean, it's up to Travis whether or not to, you know, okay, make sure you coordinate with the general counsel or not. He didn't say that. Including that this stuff had been downloaded by the hackers and that it was basically yes, an Yes, and they were going to try to recover it. They yep. were going to try going to try and suppress it. And that's another thing. It's like, it's not, you know, that NDA is, is, is pretty shady, but they were using this whole process to identify who these people were because they were anonymous when all this started. And they stayed anonymous through a lot of it. 
And because they were getting them to sign things, and if they did it with an electronic signature, it would leave their IP address and then they'd be able to track them. They did that. And then they they surprised them by showing up in person and saying, now we need your real names to sign this or the bank's not going to let it go. You know, they'll flag the, you know, the IRS. And so that's really important. And they did that not because they want to get these kids arrested. That's true. But because they figured that that was the only way to reassure themselves that these guys really aren't going to do something worse with the data. And they're, they're, they basically get these hackers to say, oh, you were like working on behalf of Uber, basically. Right. Isn't that part of the agreement or am I misunderstanding that? Well, I mean, part of the bug bounty program is like they were reporting a vulnerability and thanks for that. And here's your reward. Right. And, you know, 100K is a lot of money. Sure. Not for Uber, though. <laughs> they, it's not for Uber. <laughs> and for the amount of damage that could have been done right. with that data, that's that's actually a pretty reasonable I, price. I'm certainly not saying it's a bad corporate decision. I'm just saying, you know, there are moves that That's are... one of the things Dara said later. There are different stories, you know, between when he was fired and now. But Dara said, like, Dara's most recent version was he fired him because that one, he couldn't trust Joe Sullivan after that email that under, you know, that underplayed the breach, but that he would have made the same payment himself, that that was an appropriate payment. So, I mean, it looks to me like they were looking for, you know, the feds were hoping to get to Travis and missed. And, you know, Dara wants Uber 2.0. He doesn't want any trace of, of bad right. stuff. Dara is allowed to fire. He's allowed to fire people. I do. I agree with what Tom said. Not not I, I understand that Uber sort of helped this case, but they're allowed to like fire somebody who feels like I'm trying to clean up the company and you're not being open about everything that's happening. I get that. Yeah. They announced this hack. They have two people in my story that they're firing over it, Craig Clark and uh, Joe Sullivan. And they say, okay, we're cleaning house. But like, yeah, I mean, the, the, they were the people who did it and Dara had like a different point of view on whether it needed to be disclosed to the government. I mean, is that, and then they did settle with all these state governments. They paid more than a hundred million in fines to state AGs and now there are two convictions. And also we haven't brought up the fact that the hackers themselves who got who participate in the bug bounty, I believe they also pled guilty in this case. So that, if, the right. if the legal system works at all, every part of it, settlements, jury convictions, hackers pleading, like every part of it has come down on one side of this. Sorry, that was more passionate than I expected to be, but I don't know. I, I feel a little crazy on it. it. It's like this this has been borne out. Well, can I ask, you know, when it comes to the state of Uber, and the way they were involved in this case, because technically this is not their case. They're not suing him. This is the U.S. government uh, that is making the case here. Dara testifies here. He, he testifies to the fact that he just couldn't trust Joe anymore, which is why he fired him and, and I guess um, you know, people below him. Why does the either prosecution or defense, and I imagine it might have been the defense, never subpoena Travis? Why, why do you think Travis never appears at all in the trial? It seemed like he could have been a key person to kind of make the case one way or the other as to whether or not this was a cover-up or how many people should have known about this. Did that ever come up in discussion, like strategically, why he never appeared at all? I'm sure it did. I don't know. I wasn't privy to those discussions. I don't know why. Yeah. If I were Travis, if I did get subpoenaed by either side, I would have asked for immunity. And the feds, you know, that's probably not a good look for them. So they probably wouldn't have offered it. So probably he would have been like a hostile witness for either side. Or he could plead the fifth, right? I mean, he could plead the fifth, which is not going to help the defense or the prosecution. And it's not going to make him look good either. So, I mean, it would be dragging him in there and then it wouldn't be productive. That's my best guess off the top of my head. Interesting. I mean, I do think there's, I was going to say this earlier, but. You know, I feel like there's a classic human story where somebody is sort of 
you know, the do-gooder Boy Scout, and then they get sort of dragged into this somewhat sort of shady organization with, you know, the leader who's trying to sort of complicate things. And yeah, the sort of ethical boundaries get tested. And then the sort of clean guy ends up the one, you know, because they made the call, ends up the one on the hook, even though the architect of it all probably set the organization up in that direction, pushed people to behave in that way, but then knew better than to, you know, put their name to it. I feel like that's like sort of a classic, classic story where it's like, yeah, if you want to be sort of the the Boy Scout, you have to stick to your principles, even this mucky organization. So I, I think that's a little too pat. But as I wrote in my story, bug bounties have been used to hide a host of ills increasingly since yeah. the time this happened. So they get used to pay respectable hackers who are trying to do the right thing. And they also get they pay people to shut the hell up. Right. They, they, you know, they are as likely as not to come with non-disclosure agreements now. And some of those uh, apply to things that, you know, the company should be required to disclose and are not and are not disclosing, not just something they're not fixing, but like breaches that are, you know, things that probably led to previous breaches. It's hmm. a, the, re, the real world in this stuff is pretty ugly. Right. My guess is that Joe thought he was skating close to the edge. But it wound up doing the, the, you know, the right thing by you can make a really good argument that he was doing the right thing by Uber users because they went through all these hoops. There was some shady language. There is some stuff that should have been disclosed, but the data didn't get out. And if he and if they had called the feds on these guys, the data very well might have gotten out. Yeah. I, and I think nobody here is like, oh, my God, the public was so terribly victimized. This, cro-, you know. Yeah, I mean, it's very much did he follow the letter of some law, not did he have some terrible effect for a bunch of drivers or people, it seems like, exactly like you're saying. I think that's important to remember. Right, right. Yeah, well, that's what's interesting about this case because, you know, you obviously covered it, and as I was Googling it, I did see that almost every major outlet did have some reportage of it as it was going along. But the trial didn't set the world on fire. You know, it didn't become the Elizabeth Holmes trial or think of any other high-level tech trials that well, have happened in the Well, nobody's saying this guy's the embodiment of Travis Kalanick era Uber. I mean, I think that's, you know, it's, it didn't become a proxy for that. And right. so morally it, ambiguous. And Right, right. It did, it did sort of seem like this was, you know, the government's attempt to bring some accountability to Travis era Uber. And like we're saying, it ended up falling on this one, you know, prior to this point, pretty clean actor in the InfoSec community. And, you know, it sounds like the government made a compelling case here that he was a bad actor in in this particular way here. But the actual harm to, you know, the average citizenry just wasn't there. So, I mean, is it fair to say that he is kind of a fall guy for a larger issue that, you know, he wasn't necessarily responsible for, but, you know, there had to be some head on a stake somewhere as far as the government was concerned in terms of charging him at least? I I think the answer is yes. And, you know, I don't think they were taking into account. I mean, they I think they were trying to make an example of him in in like Uber land. But I don't, I think they may be less than thrilled about the example they're setting in chief security officer land where people are freaking out right. and are, you know, worrying if they what their own liability is. I mean, it's already like famously one of the worst jobs on the planet. I mean, hmm. uh, Alex uh, Stamos used to joke that like Suso comes from a Greek 
word meaning he who is sacrificed after a breach. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> Alex Tamos, former chief security officer at Facebook, former, and former guest on the show. Guy guest. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that's a great line. I mean, it's you know, it's up there with Russian submariner and Chinese coal miner. You don't want to be. <laughs> See, so even before this, I mean, you, you know, there's like you, you only get famous if you fail. Right. You can also make the argument. I mean, I've covered the security industry for, for more than 20 years now. And like, you know, the most important person in chart in, for a company's security is the CEO. It's, it's not the CISO. And the second most important is the CFO. Right. Because he's deciding how he or she are deciding how much you can spend on defense, which is like, you know, make stuff from the bottom line disappear. And it's super hard to value what gain you get from it. So, you know, many people are in the position of, you know, Twitter comes to mind, Mudge at Twitter, where you give them this awesome responsibility and no actual power. It, ne- it needs to be like a cultural thing because, you know, every everybody else in the organization has to play ball. They didn't at Twitter and they didn't at Uber. The InfoSec community, as you said, they were watching this case very closely. They obviously are not happy with the outcome in terms of making the job even more of a liability for the people who do it. But was there any sentiment among the InfoSec community that, you know, Joe didn't maybe handle this in the best possible way and there was some sloppiness in the writing of the NDA, the, the correspondence he had with the people above him, that maybe someone who was Tell a little more... Tell the FTC more... if you're in a negotiation with them, if you have other skeletons in your closet. Like, I mean, that's yeah. clearly what the government wants here, right? Yeah, I, I guess, my, yeah, the question is, is were, was there a sentiment of saying, yes, overall, he did the right thing, except for in the very specific ways that the government nailed him and if he were just a little bit more careful here... He could have been well, clear to or, put, or they put yeah. this in a layman way. It's like no reporter wants to see a reporter convicted, right? Reporters always cheer for like free press cases, but then sometimes there are particulars of them. And like some, you know, you're like, well, Gawker maybe shouldn't have published like a terrible sex. You know, it's like, okay, I understand why a CISO would always say don't convict a CISO. Journalists never want to see journalists convicted, but then these things get decided in the fact patterns. And like, yeah, I guess is, is there sort of a, a fact pattern that can separate this from what CISOs are doing sort of day to day. So first of all, I would say that there are some instances where I think people, reporters should get sued for libel and lose. I, I'm not going to defend every single member of my right. profession. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think I can defend half of them. <laughs> so I think the majority feeling among chief security officers is that Joe got a really bad deal. And I again, I mean, there's a lot of evidence on both sides here, but one of the things that came out is that Joe was never accused of, Joe was was grilled by the FTC and he was never accused of lying to the FTC. They, you know, it, it was a sin of omission where somebody else was sending in the thing and one of a bajillion emails that Joe was supposed to read. But misprision can include not omission, right? It, isn't it omission? It has to be an active thing. But but it doesn't it doesn't have to be a direct lie. Like you can That's correct. Right. That's correct. Right. But you know, like I said, this is not this is not a slam dunk case and the and the jury struggled for four days right. over this stuff. Right. Mm-hmm. Most chief security officers, chief information security officers are are deeply unhappy about this. They're used to being scapegoated by their own companies, and now they have to have to worry about being scapegoated by the feds at you know, in some cases in collusion with their companies. Now, you know, it's not just that Dara fired him. It's that, you know, Dara had him frog marched into the U.S. attorney's office. I mean, the hack was never like a core Uber scandal. That's part of what's bizarre about this whole thing. It was sort of like a trailing end thing. I mean, my understanding is this, the Uber hack was like disclosed and like one of the whistleblowers, they had like some security officer 
at Uber, like sent a letter, like seemingly, I think, shaking them for money. And then so then this hack was in that. And so then there becomes more of a likelihood that it comes out, you know, but it was like, my point is just it's sort of a tail end scandal. So it yeah. is sort of absurd that this would be sort of the most litigated the Travis right. conviction. Yeah. I mean, it's like it's not even getting Al Capone on income tax evasion. It's like getting a third tier goon on Al Capone's squad charged with a crime. And that goon actually happens to have been a pretty clean guy up to that point. Uh, it, it just sounded like he he did potentially, or I guess, as the law said, you know, break it in the very particular way in which he was charged. I mean, it is it is bizarre. I agree with you. There is another Uber executive who has pled guilty to something, though not for his activity, I think, at Uber necessary. Anthony Lewandowski, of course, of course, pled guilty for stealing trade secrets and then was pardoned by President Trump. I feel like that whole news cycle got totally washed away because like it was at the end of the Trump presidency and then January 6th happened. But Anthony Lewandowski, you know, the whole Waymo guy pled guilty and then was pardoned by Trump. So I think, you know, I somebody was laughing to me, an Uber, a former Uber exec was like, uh, you know, are we going to get another pardon for, uh, you know, it's a uh, sorry to make jokes about Joe, but yeah, well, Joe Biden, you know, uh, step up here. I mean, what is the expectation in terms of a sentencing for this kind of a, you know, crime? So, I mean, in theory, you could get up to eight years. I, you know, I don't know if they're mandatory minimums, you know, or what the accepted range is. You know, he didn't help them by testifying against anybody else. The real answer is I don't know. You know, and I don't normally cover criminal trials. So, you know, maybe he gets maybe he gets a couple of years um, and maybe it's probation or something. But it would be deeply unpleasant for anybody. But he's a former federal prosecutor. So to put him in a federal jail with people that he has jailed or would have, oh, you know, God. that's 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 not cool. Yeah. So yeah. I'm, I'm guessing he would be segregated somehow. Yeah. Cyber jail. Jesus. That he's a former federal prosecutor. I mean, I. You have to imagine that animated the prosecutors somewhat, that this, of all people who should be sort of the letter of the law. Yes, and they argued that here's here's one guy who does know what misprision of a felony is. <laughs> right, the only, only person. In the court, yeah. What sort of precedent do you think the government was trying to set with this case here? Because it is, like we've said multiple times, a bit of a tangential crime when it comes to Uber itself or even the broader like hack community. I don't even think it's the most interesting hack I've heard of in the last like year, uh, uh, let alone five to 10 years. I mean, if you were to look at what kind of outcome broadly that the government was trying to get from this, you know, lessons learned, what would you say it is? You know, most most charitably, I would say that they're trying to send a message that just because the CEO is a cowboy doesn't excuse you from doing what the cowboy wants at the expense of the law. I guess you could also say that, you know, breaches are a bigger deal than they used to be. Security is a bigger deal than it used to be. There's all kinds of national security implications. You know, we the U.S. has sanctioned ransomware groups that are too close to the Russian government. Uh, you don't, they don't, they would rather those people not get paid off. In fact, that's one of the few ways you do get in trouble is if you send a ransom payment to one of these sanctioned groups. You know, so maybe everybody just has to be on their toes more about how they treat beaches, including the disclosure aspect. Can I ask, I mean, part of the purpose of this show is we try to go a bit behind the scenes of the reporting of stories and the relationship that uh, reporters have with the company. I mean, this is an interesting case of, you know, Uber is obviously a key material presence within this trial. 
they're obviously providing evidence that is very useful for the prosecution here. But, you know, what sort of, you know, information and interference did you sort of get from Uber as you were doing the story in terms of, you know, trying to encourage a specific point of view? I mean, how much were they trying to influence the coverage of this case uh, in any way? Because I think it's, look, transparently, I've seen it a lot. Uh, Uber is very interested in the story, but I'd, I'd be interested in seeing from your perspective what you saw. I didn't have much interaction with them, uh, you know, in the in the end stages of this. When they fired Joe, it was weird that they did not go to any security <laughs> reporters. Yeah. They went to an Uber beat reporter. They went yeah. to a loser, a <laughs> bum. Well, yeah. I mean, I think that they were spinning hard when they fired him, that like, the, here's the root of all of our problems. We did a big, big investigation and we found this horrible stuff. I mean, th- there's a lot of nuance here. Yeah, they don't say the bug bounty. I mean, they go on the record about the story. It's not like they like, you know, I, I think I quoted Dara in the story. They don't talk about the bug bounty. They certainly talk about the size of the breach. I mean, it's true. Uber paid hackers to delete stolen data on 57 million people. Company paid hackers 100,000 delete info, keep quiet. Right. But this is, again, this is the difference between, you know, his being fired and the actual case. I mean, you would think Uber at this point, this is something that happened in the past. They wouldn't care as much about, you know, let the law and, and, and you know, the, the legal system take its course. It's interesting to me, Joseph, that they actually were not that kind of involved at all in your coverage and, and, and pushing you one direction or another. Well, at this point, there's this copious public record. So it, that's, you know, when people are testifying under oath, I find that a lot more convincing than what people are saying outside of court. Yeah. Let, let, let's broaden this out a bit because I, I, I've said, um, you know, there, there, there are broader implications here. So you were saying that, you know, in the CISO community, this verdict was met with kind of terror that they felt they've already taken one of the worst jobs in the world and made it even worse I mean, anything more to that aspect? I mean, what do you see in terms of outcomes from, you know, getting a, you know, a a CISO on the hook for what some people in the community would view as fairly standard procedure? So I'll give you one tangible thing and one less tangible thing. The tangible thing is that CISOs are looking for personal lawyers to advise them on what their liability would be for any failings on the job. The less tangible thing which I think is dangerous, is that CISOs will now be much more likely to go go the mudge route and blow the whistle and call in the feds by whatever you know legal means they can, so they're not risking anything, which is you know a real harsh gamble to take on its own. But that will make them seen internally as as like uh, internal affairs officers, as, <laughs> as 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 cops, and that may mean that people under them with security responsibilities, keep things from them because they don't want that to get reported out. And that's kind of a disaster. That's like the thing where like, you know, in a police internal affairs unit, like, you know, they are given the cold shoulder by other officers because they're the ones hunting for cops. So that's miserable. Like, you know, like I said, you know, CISO's got to have the culture on their side. They got to have the CEO, the CFO, and other departments on their side. And if they are now if they become seen as someone that could rat you out like a compliance officer, then that's a bad dynamic. That takes a tough dynamic and makes it worse. Let's let's get rid of internal affairs too. You know, I, I don't know. I I just don't see how I think, you know, these investigations being disclosed to the government is so bad. I mean, you know, there are lots, you know, there are plenty of SEC filings where, you know, a company says, you know, some hack happened and 
they happen so often. Is it that damning the company that it it be publicly announced? Generally, no. I mean, the stigma has gone away for most of this. You know, starting with when Google said, you know, owned up to getting hacked by the Chinese. I mean, nobody thinks that Google's a bunch of idiots. So, I mean, it, it has continued. I mean, everybody gets hacked. The U.S. government gets hacked. You know, there's, you know, the NSA has been badly hacked. I don't think disclosure is a bad thing. I'm in favor of uh, disclosure. I'm in favor of more forced disclosure. I'm talking about like this, this unanticipated uh, impact, which could be, un- which could be bad yeah. for core security. And, you know, maybe we'll know more, but security might not get much better. Do you think that this in a way is, is going to have a hugely deleterious effect on bug bounty programs that companies will just back away from that as a whole because they see that it just skirts the line into an area that if the FTC, for whatever reason, wanted to prosecute someone for it, they could find a way to do it? I think they're going to make bug bounty programs more fraught. It's also true that some of them deserve to be more fraught, that, you know, they are, you know, there are, you know, they're slathering makeup on a pig sometimes. The, you know, the, the early bug bounty programs were seen as part of a coordinated vulnerability disclosure program, which is from the olden days when uh, a hacker says, you know, hey, you've got this problem. If you don't fix it, I'll go public. I'll give you 90 days or whatever it is, which is what Google gives people when it finds uh, bad flaws in somebody else's program. That's kind of the industry standard. And then usually the company fixes it. But if they say, yes, yeah, not really a bug, that's a feature or, you know, it's not really urgent. We'll get around to it later. It's not that severe. Then the, the person goes public. The way bug bounty programs have evolved, they get most of their money from the companies and they're seen by some companies as a way to control the hacking community. Because if they don't if they don't shut up and take the money, then they don't get to participate in the in the bug bounty program anymore. And there's like, you know, two or three big bug bounty platforms. And if you're not welcome on any of them, uh, then you're, it's going to be much harder for you to make a living without selling your vulnerability information to governments or the private sector or brokers who might flip it to somebody who flips it to somebody who flips it to the Chinese. It is a, a very, very uncontrolled world out there. And bug bounties were one way to bring people towards the light. And I'm I'm afraid that it, they are doing a lot less of that now than they could. Are you covering the whole Binance hack, by the way, or like I'm... I am not in part because there's so many crypto <laughs> hacks these days that you know you you wouldn't do anything else, and in part because in this particular case there don't appear to be human victims. There were tokens that were lying around, um, so it's not as bad as some of the others. Oh, interesting. Just like 500 million, just like on, so yeah, with it just created out of thin air, I guess, if somebody gets their hands on it. Right. That's fascinating, actually. What I mean, have you written much about crypto hacks? I mean, like you bring up, it's it's very difficult to, you know, discuss things in terms of human terms. And they're so common these days. I mean, what's, you know, in the in the InfoSec community, what is the thinking on the security of your shit in the in the Web3 world? It's terrible. But, you know, it's like the, the the whole crypto stuff reminds me of 1999 when I was covering the dot-com boom. And, you know, the stuff was absurd on its face. So, right. like, you know, how do I really want to devote my time to explaining, you know, how this particular one is a little more absurd than others? Or can I just let people figure that out for themselves and then, you know, like go expose something that's, you know, it's actually kind of hidden. Um, it's just, I don't know. That, that, that's my general take on it. I'm interested in, in crypto as a as a means to launder money. I'm interested in it as like kind of the rocket fuel of the ransomware plague. And it's, you know, kind of interesting that, you know, North Korea and other uh, unpleasant places are, you know, using it. I mean, it sort of monetizes pure hacking. 
in, in a way that that nothing else has. I mean, you're talking about like bug bounty payments are not enough to compete with what the NSA or somebody else is going to pay you for vulnerability information. What really, you know, you can also use that information to do the hacking yourself right. and you can make a tidy sum of money. I mean, an enormous percentage of crypto that's floating around there has been stolen from somebody else who had it at some yeah. point or another. <laughs> I feel like the bug bounty program in crypto is literally just you like taking the money and then saying, hey, look, I just got $100,000 of crypto coins because your stuff is so <laughs> hackable. There's my bounty. And then they're like, please, they're like, if you give us 90% back, we'll let you keep 10% of it. I just did want to talk about my book a little yeah. bit. So Yeah, I absolutely, mean, yeah. Because of the, some of these things go, you know, go back to it. So the, the people in the book were the people that came up with coordinated vulnerability disclosure. You know, one of the people I quoted in my article, Katie Masuris, is in it. These are the people that did the, the core innovation and not by coincidence were people who wrestled with ethical questions all the frickin' time. And, you know, being now, you know, I guess a veteran of this stuff, one of the things I was trying to do was con convey to newer people in security you know, give them a set of shoulders to stand on. They can choose whichever one they want because they often disagreed with each other. But to think about, think about these sort of philosophical questions because now, unlike before, it's a nice clean profession where you can go to a nice college and get a nice job at a nice company and do cyber things without ever having to think about are there some circumstances where you should break the law? Are there, you know, what if your your employer wants you to put in a back door? What do you do? There are, there are fascinating ethical issues that come up every day in security. And I, it, it bothers me that people who are like 25 years old without any history of, you know, you know, playing in the gray areas are, you know, are more inclined to do what they're told than to figure out for themselves what is ethical. Can you tell us a little bit about the cult of the dead cow? What is it? And how does it involve a uh, current gubernatorial candidate in Texas, Beto O'Rourke? <laughs> Who is not the, uh, not, not the uh, only politician to call for loosened marijuana laws. <laughs> this one thing I like about it. So yeah, I exposed that Beto O'Rourke was a teen hacker, but it's not like, what's funny is that his politics actually kind of match what he was doing back then. I mean, he, he's like exposed for having like pushed for the things he's like, you know, pushing for as a politician. Uh, so it was a pretty clean exposure. Right. You're like, Beto is just as cool as you thought. Like, <laughs> Right. Except he wants to take away our guns. A lot yeah. of people thought he was, um, thought, well, you know, I just thought he was a pretty white boy. And then I read this is the first, this is the most interesting thing I've heard about. Right, 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 right. <laughs> yeah, he was sort of fake cool. And then it was like, oh, maybe yeah. is, there's real. He was cooler yeah. back then. He was like Kristen Cinema. There was the punk band too. Right. But, yeah. But I digress. So the Cult of the Dead Cow is the uh, oldest hacking group that is still functional in the United States. It is also the most influential hacking group in the history of the United States. It was spawned in the 1980s in Texas by some bulletin board operators. And if you don't know what that is, you can you know, ask your grandparents. They morphed several times, but were always sort of at the cutting edge of hacking, which makes them you know, a really interesting vehicle to talk about all these you know, choices that were made and why they were made. If you came of age in the 80s, in the time of uh, the movie War Games, you would know the Cult of the Dead Cow through their funny, frequently profane uh, satiric text files, which could be about anything and were sometimes political. And then because they were sort of like the cool kids in the hacking scene, some people with actual uh, hardcore sophistication in hacking sort of asked to, you know, were invited to join and, and were eager to join. So that includes people from the loft, the great uh, Boston hacker space folks that testified before Congress in 1998 that any one of them could take down the internet in half an hour. 
So these technical people came on and then in um, at DEF CON, the great, you know, giant hacking convention that was sort of coming of age and getting really big in those years, the Cult of the Dead Cow threw CDs into the crowd, the Condadent, Back Orifice, and then Back Orifice 2000, which were successive programs that would allow pretty much anybody to hack a Windows machine. Hmm. And that was certainly controversial at the time, but that helped to get press, which helped put actual pressure on Microsoft to fix things uh, because Microsoft was a monopoly and was not being responsible when people like the law said, hey, you have this major flaw in your architecture. So they were like, they were pushing the envelope. They started using the media to try and put pressure on these big, pretty untouchable software makers. And then um, they invented hacktivism. Uh, they coined the term hacktivism, which they defined as security work and service of human rights, uh, which includes per international treaty, the right to information. So they got sort of political in hacking terms. And then more broadly, they pushed Tor to include a browser because they were releasing their own, their own browser for Tor. And they helped inspire the Citizen Lab at the Monk School of International Affairs at the University of Toronto. The Citizen Lab are the world's greatest experts on tracking how governments spy on their own people. They, you know, you know, if you know about the Pegasus uh, spyware that, that governments use on their own people, that's largely because of the Citizen Lab, and they do this all the time. Are they active today, the Cult of the Dead Cow? They are, they are, but they're, you know, they're grown-ups. Uh, they actually are, you know, have some new members now. Did you out them all, or is it sort of secret, or what's the level of, like, we know who everybody is? Or... Uh, so, one of the sort of pleasant surprises in writing the book is that, in the end, all of the core members through the history of the group agreed to let me use their real names, including people, you know, some had been outed before. Um, uh, so Peter Zatio was a member, uh, most recently famous for testifying in Congress about the security disaster that is Twitter. Chris Rue, who had been outed, he was a uh, founder of Avericode, which is a billion dollar, very important security company. Mudge also ran DARPA's cyber grant making. So these, these are very serious people. But many others had not been outed, including the founder of the group, and Beto O'Rourke, who is now uh, running for, for governor. And they're letting new people in? They're, how, what's their yes. initiation? Or what? It's all terribly secret. Uh, the one rule is you cannot ask to join because that would make all their interactions unpleasant because everybody <laughs> would ask to join. Right. So you, it's kind of like, was it the best line I thought was when uh, I outed Beto? And with everybody's permission, I, you know, I, they, were, they were ready. Oh, I'm sure Beto loved it. I mean, that's, that's well, cool, Well, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say Beto loved it. I, you know, there were, he, got, he got in a world of pain because of... Um, you know, the teenage anonymous text files that he wrote, you know, some of which were, you know, one of which is kind of misogynist and, you know, another just, you know, seems naive, like imagine a world without money was, was, was one of his right. and whatever. I mean, nobody wants what they wrote when they were 16 to be, you know, right. published. And then attached to your real name when you're running for office. Right. right. Again, all this makes him sound more interesting then than he is now, but that's a separate topic. So the others, I think, came forward in part because Beto was coming forward and they wanted to show solidarity because he had the most to lose. So the new members, uh, they have added, one of them has made, made a name for herself fighting revenge porn. It's helped get laws passed, has helped get, um, you know, some measure of peace of mind for some victims of revenge porn and has helped press social media companies to do more policing for it. And then there's another woman who has sort of helped stop um, harassers within the InfoSec community, hmm. you know, which is, you know, a checkered group like any other industry. So it's actually kind of cool. One of the dings on them is that they had very, very few women and also a uh, few minorities, like a lot of hacking groups in the 1990s. Though they did have some of each. In fact, Better was the one that gender integrated the Gulf of the Dead hmm. Cow. Um, hmm. So I figure that counts for something. Is he still skilled? Like, could he hack anything today? So it was a different era. 
Um, right. It was basically text files. He also did some other stuff. He did some more driving. He did use credit cards that did not strict, strictly be- belong to him. And I would like to give a shout out to the statute of limitations, which allowed <laughs> many of these people to talk to me. Um, they weren't major crimes. I don't know what the state of the, his arts are now, but he did run a he did run a um, an internet company after graduating college when he went back to Texas, and that is what and and that included kind of as an offshoot, like a kind of an alt weekly type of electronic publication, which is why people asked him to run for city city council, which he did. So that actually did launch him into politics. Fascinating. The the one that testified against Twitter sort of during the Elon case, which which one was that? That's Mudge. That's Peter Peter Mudge Zacco. And, who and was, he's one of these, right? That's cult right. He was, he, was, he was both the loft and the cult of the dead cow. And you know him pretty well, or like you wrote about him, I mean. Yes. Do you think he was motivated to help Elon? Or like where, what's his, what are his sympathies? Or do you have a read on his motivations to, to come out on this? His motivation had nothing to do with Elon. He had decided to come out uh, he was fired before Elon made his move, and he decided to go pursue legal whistleblower avenue uh, before uh, Elon showed up. So um, Elon was this this weird element that came in at the end, but he was on the road that he was Do on. Do you think he made it more supportive to Elon in any way? Like, or... No. I mean, okay. it, it, wound, it wound up being of some benefit to Elon. Yeah, because... I mean, it didn't really help. But during obviously, every news cycle is through a certain prism, and it came out when people were obsessed with the lawsuit. So just to answer the initial question, his motivation was that Jack had brought him on to make Twitter users safer uh, after a series of hideous breaches. And he wasn't able to do that on the inside for a variety of reasons. And so he decided to do it from the outside because this is going to apply real pressure and possible additional regulation onto Twitter It'll be easier if Twitter remains a publicly traded company because one of the few levers of authority over Twitter is the SEC. And if Musk takes it private, then you don't have you don't have that. Hmm. It looks like Musk's going to wind up with it. So this might have this might have been the last chance for meaningful public oversight. Do you think someone like a Mudge, I mean, he represents someone coming from the hacker community going to be chief security officer at a major corporation. There have maybe been a few that have gone that like hacking to corporate route in the light of the Sullivan verdict and and maybe just the general trend in the industry. Is that kind of, is there more cynicism about that? The belief that you can actually help these companies by working uh, on the inside at all? Are you going to see fewer and fewer people from the hacking world want to take corporate jobs in any way? That it, It's a tough question. The hackers and security people are at one time, you know, unbelievably cynical with good reason. And also basically idealists, uh, because the ones that aren't idealists are the ones you don't hear about. They're just out stealing stuff, <laughs> you, you know, or they're hatching really, you know, impressive exploits, which they sell on sell on the black market or the gray market, uh, which is legal. So the ones you hear about are generally trying to make things better. And, you know, one of the reasons I wrote the, wrote the Cult of the Dead Cow book was to try and, you know, revive that you know, rescue the, the word hacker from like a negative connotation because hackers are actually by definition critical thinkers and that's that's incredibly valuable in, in society. I think that this will make people on the margins less likely to want a, a big corporate job with a, with a title and a car and some money. I think some will still do it because you do have a fair amount of levers there to affect good. But again, one of the points of the, of the book is that there are many different ways that hackers can contribute to a better world, you know, in government and nonprofits, open source projects. Like, you know, back when these guys were starting, they were kind of making it up as they went. But now there are serious technologists of an ethical bent 
working for members of Congress. Some of them are actually in Congress. The Red Cross has technical gurus. Amnesty International has has tech gurus. There are lots of different ways to do good with a hacking mentality and, and technical sense now than there were then. And, uh, you know, I CISO is looking a little less attractive now than, than it was before and before it wasn't looking that attractive. So, so likelihood that Beto O'Rourke is the new CISO at Uber, <laughs> not very high? I'd say very, very low. Mm. Keep looking, Uber. Thanks so much, Joseph. Uh, for, from all of us here at the Cult of the Dead Cat, uh, we, we in, uh, enjoyed, <laughs> enjoyed this conversation. Uh, thanks so much for joining. And yeah, we'll have you back on here soon. Thanks so much. This was great. Okay, thanks, Black Guys. Goodbye. Silicon Valley. Goodbye, 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 goodbye.